0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to take it this morning. Let's turn together to Philippians chapter 4, Philippians chapter 4, as we are working our way very rapidly towards the end of this study. Just one more sermon left in this book. Some five months we have been walking through these four chapters together, and we come now again to the really kind of this summation of what Paul is wanting to do as he draws this letter to a conclusion Uh, He has challenged the believers at Philippi in many ways. Uh, He has encouraged them. He has tried to strengthen them, uh, offered some little bits of correction here and there. But all in all, the church at Philippi was a a proud example for the Apostle Paul of of what he hoped to see in the churches that he had established, that they loved the Lord, they loved one another, and they had an insatiable desire to see the gospel proclaimed. Uh, They wanted to see the truth of Jesus Christ uh, just sent out all over the world, And part of that comes down to what Paul is going to talk about in the latter portion of this letter today, because their demonstration of their desire and their love for the gospel was not just through word, but was also in deed. If you found your place there, Philippians chapter 4, I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be reading verses 10 And we'll go ahead and read to the end of the chapter uh, just to kind of set the context. But this morning, we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 18. "'But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity.' In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know also, uh, the Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit, which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus." Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And you can be seated this morning. I have a question to ask you. Are you content this morning? Are you content? Now, perhaps immediately some of you in the room immediately would answer, no, I am not content. If that's you, hold on. We'll come back to you in just a moment. Uh, On the other side, there may be some of you he would say, yes, yes, I am content. I'm happy with where I am in life. I'm happy with the the house I have, with the money I make, with the job that I have, with the family and friends I have, uh, with the possessions that I have. I am content. But allow me to test your contentment for just a moment this morning. If some or all of those things which perhaps you listed in your mind, your job, your security, your possessions, your family, if those things were taken away from you, would you still be content? And this morning in our text, we will discover from the Apostle Paul the true meaning of Christian contentment, a contentment that once discovered cannot be taken away. For like Christian joy, which Paul has already laid out in here in this book, it does not depend on the circumstances that we face and in fact exist in spite of the circumstances of this life. See, most people when they think of contentment have this idea that once they have obtained everything that they want, therein they find themselves to be content. But what Paul wants us to understand this morning is that true contentment comes not from the things that we accumulate unto ourselves in order to make ourselves content, but that we are content no matter what we have or what we do not have. Now, Paul here, as he draws this letter to a conclusion, he's going to address several different things, and there's several characteristics that we're going to point out as we walk through this. One is joy, one is contentment, one is gratitude. But I want you to notice before we even begin that there's some interesting things about the way that Paul words what he says here in these latter verses, because he kind of continues to bounce back and forth. And I find it interesting being a pastor myself and Paul being a pastor here, because really the overarching theme of what Paul is addressing here in these latter verses is the issue of money. And any pastor will tell you, unless you're a prosperity preacher, you don't like to talk about money. It's one of those subjects that is is always the most critical for people that hear you preach because everybody always accuses pastors of just being so focused on money. And what we find is that even in the early church there was still this concern. The apostle Paul is very careful about the way he words what he says here in these latter verses because he had already been accused at other times and places in the New Testament of being greedy or being out for sordid gain because the churches were supporting him in the ministry work that he did. So as we go through this, you're going to notice that the Apostle Paul says some things that in the way that we look at it might seem maybe a little counterintuitive to what he's trying to describe, but what he's really helping them to understand is that he wants them to know that he is thankful for their gift, he is thankful for their provision, but he wants it to be clear that he is not doing so in a, in a manner of, of order just to, to get something from them, but he wants them to know that the gospel is worthy of the support and it's worthy of the work. Now, the first thing that we see here in this passage is, is Paul's joy. And over and over throughout the book of Philippians, as we've studied this over the last several months, we see this word pop up over and over and over again. It's the idea of joy. And he says there in verse 10, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. We've, we've, we've discussed this idea, and, and, and it, it bears repeating because Paul repeats it over and over. And he's already told us in this passage, uh, in this book, that things that are good and things that are, are concerning are, are worth repeating because we need to remind ourselves of this. But Paul notice there, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Now, Paul's getting ready to talk about the gift of support that the church at Philippi had sent to him while he's in prison. But notice he's not talking about rejoicing in them. He says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord greatly. Because Paul understands that even though this gift is coming from the church at Philippi, that ultimately it comes from the Lord because he is the one who has made provision through the church at Philippi in order for this gift to come to him. All the things that we receive in this life, no matter what source they come through, ultimately they find their source in God Himself. He is the one that provides for us. If you have a job this week that you've attended to, you are employed by some corporation, by some individual, and at the end of the week you turn your, pay, your, you turn your time slip in and they cut you a check. You are being paid by that employer, but ultimately you are being paid by God because God has provided that job for you he has given you that source of income. He has given you those things. And so Paul says, I'm rejoicing in the Lord greatly. He was overwhelmed with this joy. And notice what he says. He says, because you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. You remember that Paul is is under house arrest there in Rome, chained to a prison guard 24 hours a day, Every eight hours that guard would be changed, somebody new would come in, but Paul was limited in the amount of things that he could do. Although he had been given great opportunity to have other people to come in and to share with them and to talk with them, he wasn't isolated completely. He was still very limited in the things that he could do. He couldn't go out and have a job. He couldn't go out and do the things that he had yet done in his ministry previously. But as Epaphroditus had come to Rome With a message from the church at Philippi, he had also brought along with him a gift to the Apostle Paul. This generous gift had arrived there from the church, and Paul was joyful in it, because Paul understood that what was happening here was, again, God's faithfulness in providing for the Apostle Paul in his time of need. Paul could have sat back and said, I don't know what's going to happen, but he trusted the Lord. He knew that at some point the Lord would bring along exactly what he needed, and God just so happened to use the church at Philippi to answer that prayer, because God uses means. God uses each one of us in this room. I, I would say that if we went around the room this morning, almost all of us could probably share a moment where we have been a part of something that God did through us, that ministered to somebody else that we had no idea the impact it would have. We were just trying to be obedient to the Lord's guiding. And by doing that, the Lord used it in such a way to have a powerful impact. And that's exactly what we see happening here. Paul was filled with joy because of what the Lord was doing. It was just this continual reminder that the Lord was faithful to him. He continued to see God's answered prayers. Paul says that they had revived their concern what does that mean? He says that you've revived your concern for me. Well, it tells us that in the past that they had supported Paul. He, he addresses that later on in the verses. They had strongly supported Paul. Uh, they had give abundantly in consideration of, of really uh, what a small church and really how kind of poverty stricken they were in and of themselves. They had given above and beyond what was expected of them to do. But for some reason or another that's not mentioned to us in the text, their support had waned. It had been cut off. They hadn't sent anything else. And we don't know yet what what has happened there. But now, Paul says, it has been revived, or in another word, it has bloomed again. The word that Paul uses here, it really calls to mind what happens uh, to the trees at the end of the summer and the autumn season. The trees, the leaves fall off and they appear to have died right? They're just bare trees there. And you go all through the winter and you look up on the mountains and you see these bare tree trunks there. But then the springtime comes and the weather begins to warm and those trees begin to bud and to flower and to bloom and the leaves come back out and it's refreshed again. And this is the language that Paul is referring to. He says, now, he says, you had slacked off, you had left off in your giving, he says, but now it has been revived again. You are doing exactly what God had intended for you to do. You had revived your concern for me, so you remembered me. You remembered me in the sacrifice that I've made. You have remembered me in the difficulties that I've walked through. And I remember, Paul here wants to be very careful because he's rejoicing in the Lord's provision. He's rejoicing in God sending this gift through the church there. But he doesn't, again, want them to think that he's upset at them. He, he's addressing a, a tender subject here. He's saying, like, Now, guys, you used to give all the time. You used to support everything I was doing, but then it all stopped. So Paul wants him to understand. He says, Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lack opportunity. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, don't think that I'm upset at you because your support waned. I understand that it was not because you were. Lacking in your concern of me. It wasn't that you had decided that you didn't like me anymore, that you didn't want to support the ministry. He said it was just due to a lack of opportunity. Paul knew their heart for him because he had labored alongside of them for so long. He knew how much he loved them and he knew how much they loved him. He knew how much they loved the gospel and he knew that had they been able to, they would have continued to faithfully minister with him in his work. Now, We don't know the reason why. We don't know the reason why it waned. We don't know what the lack of opportunity was. It could have been just the difficulty of getting something to Paul. Where Paul was in Rome was a a far distance of travel from where they were in Macedonia and Philippi. It, It could have just been the difficulty of getting there. Maybe they didn't have the right contacts or the source of information to get him there until they were able to send Epaphroditus. Or it could have been that they had gone through a season of their life as well where they just didn't have the resources in order to be able to do that. But Paul says, I am thankful now that now that the opportunity has been presented to you again, that you have continued in the work that God called you to do through supporting the ministry. Brothers and sisters, there are times where the opportunity is not there for us. It may be because we just don't have a way to do it, but there are times where the opportunity is there because we just can't do it. But what we need to understand is that that's okay, but that we also need to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that when the opportunity is there, and we can do it, that we should. He told the church at Galatians, he says, so then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who are of the household of the faith. We should be looking for those opportunities that God gives us, and we should be taking advantage of those opportunities. So there was this joy that Paul had in the work of the ministry, but in the provisions that God was making through the church there at Philippi. But secondly, I want you to notice Paul's contentment. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says, "...not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means." I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Now again, at the very first part of this verse, Paul is pointing to the fact that he wants to be careful in the way that he words these things. He's going to talk about his life. He's going to talk about some of the things that he has endured and he says, I don't want you to think that I speak from want. He did not want, to th- he, he did not want the church of Philippi to think that their lack of support over this period of time had caused him to be in great need or desperation. He didn't want them to think, I've been suffering and it's all because of you. It's all because you didn't send what you should have sent when you should have sent it. But he also didn't want them to think that in the midst of his joyfulness that he was exhibiting greed in all the honesty that Paul has here. He wants them to understand that he's not trying to guilt them into sending him more money, but that he wants them to know that the gospel needs to be supported and that God works through them in faithfully doing that work. Paul has already related to the church over and over again that true Christian joy is not based on the current circumstances or situations of life. Paul taught and believed that those who are Christian leaders are entitled to be supported in their work. They're entitled to be provided for by the church. Listen to what Paul says in various places throughout the New Testament. Galatians chapter 6. One who has taught the word... Must share all good things with the one who teaches them. Let the elders rule well, who be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, or the laborer deserves his wages. 1 Corinthians 9 In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Paul believed that it was necessary for the church and the ministries of the church to be supported by the members of the church. But now there were times when Paul chose not to avail himself of this support. Paul was a single man. He traveled light. He didn't have many possessions. He kind of lived a very frugal style of life. And so there were times because he chose to live that way and because he was not married, that Paul didn't need all of those things. And so he would avail himself at certain places. When he would go into certain churches, he would tell them, I don't need you to provide for me at this time. I'll get something else and do those things in order that I can uh, further the gospel. He didn't want to cause a hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Because you see, Paul had discovered something in his course of his Christian experience. He knew that God would provide for him. He knew that God would take care of him. And so Paul tells them in this passage, look what he says. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. The definition of contentment, just from the dictionary, says this, the degree of happiness which consists in being satisfied with present conditions. A quiet, uncomplaining, satisfied mind. content. Now, there's a difference between worldly contentment and Christian contentment. We talked about that a little earlier on. Worldly contentment is based upon things, right? As if, if long as we have what we feel like we need, then we can be content. And there's been a big movement afoot over the last several years of, of um, you know, people saying, okay, well, then to be content, that means to eliminate things from your life, right? You know, to, to kind of narrow down and get rid of all these extra possessions that you have and, and just live a simplified life. Uh, you know, you only need four, four different colored shirts in your closet and three pairs of pants, right? You only need about five books in your house. And, you only need, and you, if you can get rid of all the stuff, then you'll be content, right? And, and, and there's a sense where that's true, right? Where we, if we realize that we don't need all these things, but that's still not true contentment. I don't know how anybody can survive with just five books. But true contentment comes not just from the possessions that we have, True contentment has to be an inward thing that happens on the inside of us. And that's why only Christians can know what true contentment is. Listen to what the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs said. He says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit, which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Christian contentment, is a complete and utter trust in the Lord in all circumstances. Contentment means I'm going to trust the Lord that no matter what happens, I know He's in control, and I'm going to cheerfully and willfully submit to it. Brothers and sisters, this is is deep stuff, right? It's it's easy to read this and to think, oh, yeah, well, that sounds great. I I want to have Christian contentment. But Paul, by his own example, helps us to understand that Christian contentment is one of those things that we should pursue. We should desire to have it, but it doesn't come easily. Paul had Christian contentment because he had endured those types of things. He wrote to the church at Corinth, and he said, "...to this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed and roughly treated." and are homeless we toil working with our own hands and when we are reviled we bless and when we are persecuted we endure paul didn't get this contentment overnight and this is good news for us this morning this was not given to him upon conversion when paul came to Christ there on the road to damascus it wasn't that he got up off his feet and all of a sudden had fully discovered what it meant to be content in christ no it was something that he had learned throughout his years it was a learned experience Throughout the course of his Christian life, year by year, month by month, day by day, Paul had learned. His life had had highs and it had had lows. It had had joy and sorrow, pain and pleasure. But through it all, he was learning to be content. Paul had been beaten and shipwrecked and stoned, he had been persecuted and maligned and hated. And through it all, Paul said, I realize what God is doing is shaping me into the person He wants me to be, and no matter what's going on around me, I can be content in Him. Listen to what John Gill said. John Gill, one of my favorite old commentators, he says this, this contentment he's talking about, he's talking about Paul's contentment. He says he had this, not by nature, but by grace. It was not natural, but advantageous to him. It was not what he had acquired by his industry, but what he had learned. And that not in the school of nature and reason while an unregenerate man, nor at the feet of Gamaliel while he was training under him the law of Moses and in the traditions of the elders, but he learned it of God and was taught it by the revelation of Christ and under the teachings of the Spirit of God that in the school of affliction, by a train of experiences and many sorrows, afflictions and distresses, For this lesson is learned quite contrary to all the rules and reasons among men, not by prosperity, but by adversity. Paul had learned how to be content because he had walked through the proverbial school of hard knocks. He had gone through all of these things and found out on the other side that the only way that you can walk through those things and come out on the other side victorious is if you have contentment in Christ. I have a fear that far too many people today who claim the name of Jesus do not have a contentment in Christ that will allow them to survive the difficulties of this life. There are far too many people who have come to a, a, a relationship with Christ or come to some type of profession of Christ based upon the fact that they think that by being in Christ that everything will be, be better. That life will be easier once you become a Christian. But, brothers and sisters, what Paul is helping us to understand here is that life becomes oftentimes far more difficult once we are a Christian. But if we are content in Christ, then we can make it. If we're content in Christ, then we can continue to do all that God has called us to do. Now, there are those of us in this room who have faced great difficulty in different seasons of our life. We've had sickness, we've had pain, we've lost loved ones, lost children lost parents, lost our jobs, walked through seasons of difficulty. But none of us have gone through some of the things that the Apostle Paul has. And think about how fickle our emotions and our contentment have been and the things that we've walked through. And so this morning what the Apostle Paul is challenging us to is this idea of true Christian contentment, and he wants them to understand, brothers and sisters, if you're not there yet, it's okay, but get there as quickly as you can. He said, I have learned this. He said, and you can learn it as well. And this is what we so desperately need in our Christian culture. What we so desperately need in the world in which we live. Brothers and sisters, if you've not been paying attention to what's going on in the world around us, Christianity is is very quickly becoming the ostracized group of people in this world. There are things that are being done both politically and culturally to try to malign Christians as much as possible. And if it happens, then then God is allowing those things to happen for His goodwill and His good pleasure, but we must prepare ourselves for what that means as believers. And when those things come, we must be content in Christ and not content in the things that we have in this life. Paul had already pointed to this earlier in the book of Philippians because he talked about that he had lost everything right he says I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish so that I may gain Christ Paul said it's worth throwing everything away in this world as long as I have Jesus and if I have Jesus therein I can be content in every circumstance Jesus pointed to this ideal when he was preaching the sermon on the mount when he said don't worry saying, what will we eat or what we will drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, but your heavenly father knows that you have need for all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. So do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will take care of itself. What is that? That's contentment. Contentment means not worrying about tomorrow. Contentment means not worrying about what's going to happen. Contentment means trusting in what God is doing because he will provide and keep us. Paul was totally dependent upon God and therefore he was dependent on no one else It was the reason that although Paul was appreciative of the gift here of the church, he could say, brothers and sisters, I'm thankful that you have sent this to me. He says, but I want you to understand that even if you didn't send it to me, he said, I would still rejoice in the Lord. I would still be content in Christ because he's going to provide for me one way or the other. But Paul says that this was a powerful secret. I love the language that Paul uses here in verse 12. Go down there to the middle of the verse, and he says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Here in verse 12, Paul reiterates what he's already really stated in verse 11. And he gives some practical examples of what that contentment means like in the Christian life because he says, I've known what it means to live with humble means and how to live in prosperity, of being filled and going hungry. And really, these are such polar opposites of one another. Humble living, having little means just the essentials to get by. It's really the idea of of living in poverty it's like walking along with, with, with holes in your socks and your shoes and, and clothes barely enough to hold onto your body. You're, you just have just barely what you need to stay warm and get by. And Paul says, I've been there. And he says, on the other side, he says, I've been prosperous. That word means abundance or an overflow, it means more than enough. That means going from having one pair of pants and one pair of shoes to having a whole closet full of clothes. Paul says, I know what it's like to be in both places. But why does he point that out? Because, again, he's calling us back to this idea of contentment. Because contentment in life is needed whether you have a little or whether you have a lot. And you might think that is, 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 would be contra- contradictory to one another, right? If you have a little, yeah, you would need to learn how to be content, But if you have a lot, why would you need to learn how to be content? Well, listen to what Calvin said. He says, prosperity is want to puff up the mind beyond measure and adversity, on the other hand, to depress. When we have little, we need contentment because we can begin to say, oh, woe is me. Look at how little I have. I don't have as much as the guy across the street. I don't have as much as, the, as my family does. Woe is me, how depressed I am. We need to learn contentment. But in prosperity, we can begin to say, oh, look at me. Look at how much I have. I have more than enough. Right? I, don't, I don't need anything. I don't need anything from God. I don't need anything from anybody else. I'm puffed up with pride, but you need contentment. Paul says, I've learned what it means to be filled and to go hungry. Again, Paul is setting polar opposites here. Being filled is like a scrumptious, multi-course meal, fed beyond satisfaction, just overstuffed with food. And then he says, to be hungry, that means really to starve, to have nothing before you to eat. He says, I know what it means to have abundance and to suffer need. Why? Because Paul says it's not about what we have. It's about the state of mind that we are, and that is to be content. But in the middle of that verse, Paul says he has learned the secret. And it's interesting because that word that Paul uses there for the word secret speaks to the idea of mysteries. Mysteries. And it's really to come from the idea of, uh, at the time in which Paul would write this, there were lots of different groups and sects that were out there of, of people who would teach these mystical religions, and, and a lot of them would talk about, oh, well, you need to come to us to learn this secret thing or this mystery, and only those who were indoctrinated or who were uh, welcomed into this group could understand or know this. And that's the language that Paul uses here. Paul says, what I've learned through contentment is not something that just everybody can know, but it's something that is taught through Christ. It's a secret that we're introduced to in our relationship with Him. It's something that He unveils to us and gives to us in order that we may live this life in complete trust and satisfaction in Him. True contentment is not something that can be learned by the normal person. It can only be grasped by those who are inside of Christ. It's a secret that can only be discovered by the Christian as they commit their lives to the absolute pursuit of it. Brothers and sisters, Christian contentment does not come just by reading about it. It comes by the pursuit of it. We have to pursue contentment. We have to lay aside those things. We have to trust in Him, and we have to be willing to say, okay, God, I want to learn contentment, and then we have to be ready whatever may come. Because sometimes it's not going to be easy to learn contentment. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, But in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, and in hunger. That's what it means to be content. You don't see that verse engraved on a doily and hanging on the wall of people's dining rooms, right? Hardship, distress, beatings, imprisonments. But this is what it means to be content. When Paul talks about this, like he, he's not just talking about some lackadaisical Christian life. He says, brothers and sisters, I have endured these things. And he says, I want you to know because I have walked through this season of life, he says I'm come out on the other side and even though I'm still suffering he says I can boldly stand before you today and tell you that you can find contentment in Christ you can find satisfaction in him that no matter what you're walking through that it will be okay That passage I was just reading there in Corinthians at the end of that verse At the end of that section, he says, as punished, yet not put to death, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Paul points to this idea of being a secret. It was something he learned, something that was taught to him, something that he discovered in his pursuit of Christ and who God wanted him to be. As Christians, we should be an intrepid secret hunter who gives everything in our pursuit of this secret of contentment. May we pray, Lord, no matter what we do in this life, no matter what we encounter, may we find contentment in you. The next thing I want you to notice here in this passage is strength. Look at verse 13. He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, there is perhaps no other verse in the Bible that is so misconstrued, twisted, and misapplied as this verse here. You see this verse on coffee cups and t-shirts and wall hangings and bumper stickers? Now, I want you to not, I want you to misunderstand me this morning. It's not that this is not a wonderful verse. This is a wonderful verse. This is an incredible verse, and it's not also that it doesn't apply to believers today. It does apply to believers today. But, but let me tell you something this morning. This verse is not about your football team winning next Sunday. It's not about you sticking to your diet after your New Year's resolution. It's not about your golf game. It's not about a myriad of other bad applications. You hear people say, oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Yes, brothers and sisters, you can when this is applied to the right and proper context. So what is the right and proper context here? Again, this goes back to why it's so important that you don't build a theology of belief on one verse plucked out from the context that it's in. Because what has Paul been talking about here? Paul has been talking about Christian contentment, satisfaction in Christ despite the circumstances of this world. So when Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what he's saying is, is that because I am content in Christ, no matter what this life brings to me, whether it be good or bad, whether it be joy or sorrow, whether it be rich or poor, full or hungry, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul had a confidence in the outcome. And it's found there in the first two parts, the first two words of that verse, he says, I can. I can. Jesus says in John chapter 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Again, those are dangerously misconstrued words sometimes. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay, Jesus, I want a new car and a bass boat and a house at the lake. Now we just wait. But what is Jesus saying here? He says, if, my, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. The context is, is that if you're in Christ and he's in you, then the things you're going to ask for are the things that he desires for your life and the things that he does want to give you. So we are directing our thoughts and our minds towards Christ. And in doing that, then we receive those things. We see that ability to say, okay, God, here's what I want. And God says, okay, yes, that's exactly what I want for your life. Here you go. So Paul says, I can do these things because he has confidence in the outcome. He knows that whatever he sets out to do in obedience to Christ, that he can do no matter what the journey looks like. He says, I can do those things. Now, he's he's not talking about a self-righteous kind ofness. Paul's not saying I in the sense of being self-righteous. He's talking about this determined ability, and he realizes, Paul, if you read his letters, he realizes and, and proclaims his own inability over and over again. But what he's saying, he says, I can do these things because of who God has made me to be, because of who Christ is in me. And notice what Paul says, because he's talked about already this idea of contentment and the things that he has suffered through. And he says, I can, not that I hope to, or I should be able to, or if I'm lucky, then I'll be able to do this. No, Paul firmly plants his feet on this assertion, I can, because that's what contentment is all about. If we're content, then we can. So Paul had a confidence in the outcome, but he also had a confidence in in the trials and the situations of life. Listen to what Albert Barnes says. He says, how cheerfully should we engage in our duties and meet the trials that are before us, leaning on the arm of our almighty redeemer. Let us not shrink from duty. Let us not dread persecution. Let us not fear the bed of death, end quote. Paul says, I can, what, do all things. Paul was not talking about doing whatever he wanted to do. He was talking about doing those things which God called him to do. He was talking about walking through the seasons of life that God would ask him to walk through. To walk through the shipwrecks and the beatings and the imprisonments and the trials. To walk through seasons of plenty and seasons of lack. To walk through seasons when he was hungry and seasons when he was full. He says, I can do all things. And as Albert Barnes says, we shouldn't shrink back from that thought. As as humans, as, as Americans, we have this, ten, this, this tendency to think, okay, well, I'm going to pray that everything will be good for me. I don't think any of us wakes up in the morning and says, okay, tomorrow, Lord, I pray that I will have a little to eat and that I'll be hungry for the rest of the week. And we shouldn't pray that way. We should pray that God would give us exactly what we need, and we know that God will give us exactly what we need. But what Paul is helping us to understand is that if we walk through those seasons that we can do it because God has given us his strength. That no matter where we are, Paul says, I can do all things. All things good, all things bad. When the road is easy and when the road is difficult. Brothers and sisters, when God causes you to walk through seasons of joy or when God causes you to walk through seasons of sorrow, you can do all things. But why? He says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. There was a source of this ability. There was a source of this power, and that was through Christ. This again is where we understand that this kind of contentment, this kind of power comes not just from being a human, not just from living on this earth, but by being a believer in Jesus Christ. If we are in Christ, through Christ, we receive those things that we need. God has given us His Holy Spirit to guide us and to direct us and to give us all things that we need according to our faith in Him. He says it was Christ who strengthened him. For this endurance, it was Christ who strengthened him to walk through and to do all things. Paul looked back at his life and he looked ahead at his future and he says, I know what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do in my life, and it has given me the strength to do whatever I need to do. Paul said to the church at Ephesus, Finally, what be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? He wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Again, to the church at Ephesus, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. The word that Paul uses here for strengthen is a word that means a act that is both present and continual. It's something that God was doing in Paul's life now, and it's something that God would continue to do through Paul's life throughout the entirety of his life. Paul had a full dependence upon Christ for his help and his strength. This idea of being strengthened was the idea of being infused with something. And this infusing of something gave Paul what he needed in order to endure. I remember when my grandmother was still alive. She used to have to go on a regular basis to have uh, iron infusions. She didn't have enough iron in her blood, so she would get very weak, very tired, So we'd go over there to Clyde, go in the office, they would give her an iron infusion. You know what was amazing? Is just my sitting in a chair and having some iron put in your blood, the amount of energy that it would restore to her, the amount of of vitality that would give back to her, right? Because she was lacking in something. And when that thing that was lacking was restored, she had the strength to do what she needed to do. And so Paul says we are lacking in the strength that we need in order to be content. We are lacking in the strength that we need in order to endure. But God will infuse us with that strength through Jesus Christ. He gives us exactly what we need in the moment that we need it. One commentator said what Christ wants Paul to do, Christ enables Paul to do. Where the finger of God points, the hand of God provides the way. I want you to notice next the gratitude. Look at verses 14 through 16. He says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Again, Paul's being careful here. He wants them to understand this level of contentment because that was what they needed to learn. They needed to understand that Paul was content no matter what happened. He wanted them to be content. But again, he did not want them to think that he was not grateful for the generosity that they had shown him now and that they had shown him previously. So he says, nevertheless, notwithstanding, he says, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. It was a good thing that they were doing in sending this gift to Paul. This gift was a tangible demonstration of their love and care for him and of the gospel work. The gift that they were sending was a sharing of a struggle that they were hoping to alleviate the burden that was upon Paul. They wanted him to not suffer. They didn't want him to feel like things were were being chaotic around him. So they said the best thing that we can do is send a gift to him in order to encourage him and strengthen him in the faith. They were faithfully practicing what Paul had already referenced earlier in the book of Philippians. Remember when he said to think not of yourselves, but to think of others more highly than you. And even though they weren't there present with Paul, they were active participants in the gospel work because of their support. The church at Philippi was never going to go to Rome. They were never going to be there with Paul inside the jail. They were never going to be there and witness to the guards that Paul had witnessed to the guards. They weren't going to see those of Caesar's household coming to faith in Christ because they weren't there, but it was credited to their account because they had faithfully supported the work of Paul. They had enabled him to do the work. And so the credit went not only to Paul's account, but it went to their account as well. It's the same day. Those who support the work of the gospel... What those who they support do is attributed to those people's accounts. 3 John chapter 1, he says, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers and they will have testified to your love before the church. You do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God, for they went out in the name, the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support such men that we may be fellow workers with the truth. Paul talked earlier in the Philippians. He says, you are all partakers of grace with me. He says, it is a good thing that you are doing in supporting the work here, in supporting me, and supporting the gospel. But he also hearkens back to what they had done before because he wants them to know that he's not just thankful for what they're doing now to support the work. He's thankful for what they did previously to support the work. He hearkens back some 10, 12 years ago in his early days of ministry as he left Philippi to go out on a missionary journey. He says, you were the only church that supported me. He says, after I left Macedonia, no other church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Paul uses accounting terms here uh, for giving and receiving to describe how the church at Philippi had interacted with him. Think about that, that only one church was supporting Paul's intensive ministry. But with God's help, it was more than enough. Now, later on, other churches, including those at Thessalonica and Berea, would also begin to support them. But Paul had never forgotten the faithful and generous support of the believers at Philippi. At a time when nobody else supported him, Paul said, you were the ones who stepped up. You were the ones who believed. You were the ones who faithfully sacrificed for the work of the gospel." Now finally, I want you to notice the reward. Look at verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, for I seek the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Lest Paul be accused of greed or taking advantage of the believers at Philippi, which was often what his adversaries and critics would do. He points out that his joy here is not only in the fact that they helped provide for his needs, but more importantly, Paul was thankful and joyful at the fact that what they did would be applied to their spiritual account. Paul knew that there would be a temptation for those to accuse him of seeking the gift itself. But he said, no, he said, I seek for the profit which increases to your account. Paul knew the knowledge that their gift, what they had done was an act of worship and sacrifice to God. And through it, they would receive the blessing of God. Every gift that they had given Paul had left their hands physically and ended up with Paul. But they received back to themselves a powerful spiritual blessing. They would receive back to themselves a powerful physical blessing at times. One commentator says, God is a good bookkeeper. He will settle all accounts and he pays big dividends. Proverbs chapter 19, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his good deed. Matthew chapter 10, he who receives a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he who receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whoever in the name of a disciple gives to one of these little ones even a cup of cold water to drink, truly I say to you, he shall not lose his reward. The Lord is faithful to take care of those who take care of others. The Lord is faithful to provide for those who help to provide for others. The Lord is faithful, Paul tells us here, to provide and to give back to those who support the work of the ministry, the work of the minister, and the work of the gospel. Now, we don't know how much money they sent to Paul here in Rome. But notice what Paul says in verse 18. He says, I've received everything in full. Basically, he says, brothers and sisters, you don't know anything else. He says, the account is paid off. And he says, and have an abundance. The gift was so abundant that Paul could write back to them and say, I don't need anything else at this time. You've done more than enough. I've received everything in full. And Paul says that what you did, he says, what you have sent through Epaphroditus was a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Have you ever thought about how our giving, how your giving, is a sacrifice and an act of worship to God? It's part of the reasons why in church services we have the offering in the middle of the service. Right, Because the giving of our offering, the giving of our tithes and offerings to God is not just something we do. It's not just so we can keep the lights on, but it's an act of sacrifice and worship to God. When we give sacrificially, when we give of what God has given to us, it is an act of worship to God because we're saying, God, I'm realizing that the stewardship of my life is not my own, even down to my finances. And so I'm giving that over to you and trusting you to make provision in the areas where I may lack. It's interesting that the language that Paul uses here, he calls it a fragrant aroma and an acceptable sacrifice. An acceptable sacrifice means one that God desires and the one that God receives. So Paul is saying here, God expects you, God desires for you to make this kind of gift, to make this kind of sacrifice. And when you do it, he receives it unto himself, not just even though the money went to Paul. God didn't receive any of the tangible money that the church at Philippi sent to Paul. Paul received all of that but Paul says, in God's eyes, you were doing that unto him and not unto me. You were giving a sacrifice to God and not just a gift to Paul. But the word that Paul uses there for fragrant aroma is used in several different places. It's used of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. It says, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And Paul uses it in 2 Corinthians, for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one the aroma of death to death and from other an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? Paul says, this is how beautiful your gift is to God. It is not just a well-pleasing sacrifice, but it is a pleasant aroma to Him. It's the hearkening back to the, to the aroma of the sacrifices in the Old Testament. When those things were done, it was well-pleasing to God. The smell of the sacrifice went up. And as Christ was sacrificed on the cross, the aroma of that sacrifice was well-pleasing to God. As the gospel is preached and the truth is proclaimed, the aroma of that is well-pleasing to God. And as Christians faithfully support the work of the gospel through giving of money or time or energy, it is a well-pleasing aroma that is satisfying to God. William Barclay said, He who gives makes himself richer, for his own gifts opens up to him the gifts of God. Now, we're not... Even come where anywhere close to venturing into the region of prosperity gospel. We're not talking here that if you give a thousand, God will give you back ten thousand. We're not making promises here that if you give this much money, then God will make your children behave better or make your marriage better. But what Paul is very clear here in is that as we support the work of the gospel, as we support the work of the ministry, that God is pleased by that. And look at verse 19. He says, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now, again, we could just pluck that verse out, right? And just say, my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And what a beautiful promise that is. But again, it's devoid of the context if we don't understand what Paul is talking about here. He says, brothers and sisters, as you sacrifice and give to the work of the ministry, as you give and sacrifice and make an offering unto God, and sometimes you do that in such a way that sacrificially, he says, and maybe you don't understand how you do it, but you do it because you want to please God and you want to honor him. He says, in that context, he says, my God will supply all your needs. He says, you don't have to worry about what's going to happen. He says, because God will take care of those things for you. And next week, we're going to begin there. Because there's a lot to unfold in that that beautiful promise that Christ has given us. Paul's going to open up as he finishes out. Really, this is his doxology at the very end of this chapter. But brothers and sisters, let us long for this idea of true Christian contentment. Let us ask God and pray to Him that He will help us to live this life in such a way that no matter what we are enduring or walking through, that we can be joyful and content in Christ because he know, we know that He is strengthening us to endure all things. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time. We thank You for, Lord, just the instruction from Your Word. Lord, I don't think there's anyone in this room this morning, myself included, who could stand up and say that we have discovered what it truly means to be content in You. We have not fully learned that lesson yet. But Lord, we desire to. This world tells us that there are all these other things that will satisfy us and content us. But Lord, we know that true contentment comes from Christ. And that if, Lord, if everything that we love, hold, and cherish and cling to today disappears tomorrow, that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that being content in You is what we need to endure in this life. So Father, help us. Help us to seek Your face. Help us to seek Your truth. Help us to find complete satisfaction in You. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name.